Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest, and I do see several guests in the chat room tonight, and you wish to participate in the chat, please go ahead and sign in through your Facebook account or blog, Talk Radio. Well, tonight's show will focus on the challenges and opportunities in searching for your African-American roots. And my guest tonight is Nika Sewell-Smith. Nika is a professional photographer, speaker, and documentarian with more than 17 years of experience as a genealogist. She has extensive experience in African ancestor genealogy, reverse genealogy, and family reunion planning and execution. She is also an expert in genealogical research in the northeastern Louisiana area, sharing genealogy with youth, documenting the ancestral journey, and employing the use of new technology in genealogy and family history research. Nika is also the producer and host of the Black Progen Live. So let me give a warm welcome to Nika Sewell-Smith to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Nika. Thank you for having me again tonight. Well, Nika, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show tonight. And I, you know, read to everyone your bio, and it said you have 17 years of experience in genealogy. So why don't you tell us what, you know, what made you go into genealogy? Well, um, it's interesting. Um, you know, I started when I was three years old. <laughs> That's the reason why I've been doing this for 17 years, because I'm just um, that uh, absolutely young. I'm kidding. Um, I actually have always, as most people say, have had an interest in doing um, family history research. Um, 
Number one, um, I was always exposed to family, um, considering that my um, mother, um, her family has had family reunions for the past, gosh, since 1972. Uh, So I grew up going to those reunions every year, you know, every two years uh, that we have them in various locations across the country. And in our family, you know, it didn't matter if you were a second or a third or a fourth cousin. We knew who everyone was. And so we, you know, that since that started, we were passing that on to our children, grandchildren, you know, for some people, great-grandchildren. And so that, that, that whole idea of family, um, knowing where you come from, all that kind of stuff, um, that information was just something that was just so much a part of who I was. And so when I was about six years old, we had a family reunion in Memphis, which is actually where um, I live right now, um, the irony you know, that I actually live in this, in this city where this amazing thing happened. Um, one of my mom's cousins put together this family tree that had a lot of information uh, about my um, maternal grandmother's family. And um, he really started it because his daughter had a question about our family history and where um, our family came from and who we, you know, descended from and all that. And so he sat down with several elders, interviewed them, all this stuff. And after we left that reunion in Memphis, I used to go home, or when we went home, I would pull that tree out all the time and roll it out on the table and read it as a child. For years I did this, and I wanted to know really where all the kids were that were my age, like where were these people and where did they live and, you know, what did they do and all these things. And so um, as, you know, years went on and all that kind of stuff, I thought my cousin was maintaining that information, and he wasn't. And so at that point, I just, you know, being this kind of self-starter that I am, I decided, you know what, I'm going to uh, do it myself. I'm going to take up the mantle from where he left off, and I guess the rest is history at this point. So um, I, I, just, I guess I just really kind of grew up being interested in family history research. And, you know, and that's one of the things that I often advocate to people. They often ask me, how do you get young people involved in family history? And the easiest way to do that is to introduce it early. Right. And you're so fortunate. You said three years old. Then you said this tree at six years old. So first of all, you're very fortunate to even have seen a family tree. Well, before we get into your specific genealogy journey, uh, what kind of genealogical training uh, have you been exposed to to enhance your skills as a genealogist? Most of my training comes from the world of I want to know how to do it, so I'm going to figure it out. (laughs) A lot of the stuff that I learned was, you know, when I started doing research um, 17 years ago, there was an online environment, but it was nowhere near what it looks like right now. So a lot of the training and a lot of the experience that I got was just from trial and error and, and, and really going to conferences, learning from um, some amazing people, getting some amazing resources such as, you know, Tony Burrow's book, Black Roots. You've got Dee Palmer Woodter's book, A Place Called Home. Um, you know, that, that's, once I learned the fundamentals, the starting with yourself and then going backwards and tracing that information – and then making sure you have your sources to back up so that if someone else decides they want to come through and look at what you have, they can go back to where you got the information from. Um, You know, supplementing what I was learning on the fly with going to courses at conferences and, you know, at this point now potentially could be watching a webinar or 
Uh, it could be, um, you know, listening to a show or a podcast. You never really stop learning. You never really stop being trained. And if you, and if you are, you kind of, you know, you kind of pigeonhole yourself into not growing or not expanding. So um, most of, like I said, most of my experience was, was on the fly. I often talk to people about the fact that I kind of, by happenstance, ended up going to do research at the, you know, the on-site level where a lot of researchers now, it takes them a long time to get there. I actually started pretty early on doing that, not knowing that that was kind of not uh, the norm now. Um, so I often advocate for people to go and do on-site research um, because it's so valuable, and I know that I wouldn't have gotten as much information or been as successful if I hadn't started that early on in the process. So, yeah, um, I'm definitely a self-starter, self-taught, um, supplemented, you know, by – of course, being, you know, mentored um, by people, you know, like Angela Walton Raji and a number of other folks, um, you know, throughout the, you know, the course of time. Um, another person I mentioned as well is I actually have a cousin who is a um, fairly decently known African-American researcher. Her name is Marilyn White, and she's based out of Los Angeles. She's a member of CAGS there, and uh, we actually share the same on uncle. And um, she was someone that I grew up with listening and hearing about genealogy research and methods and I learned a lot from her as well so well we have a question coming out of the chat and the question is what was your first gene the first genealogy conference you attended Ooh, that's a great question I want to say the first conference I attended was something regional um out in the bay area which is where uh, I spent uh, quite a bit of time there was, or there still is actually uh, an event that happens every year during Black History Month um, called the Safer, actually it's the Sacramento African American um, Research Workshop. And it's held at uh, one of the family history centers in Sacramento. There's a group that's there. Um, there used to be a, a genealogy society, but they don't exist anymore. But a group of people still puts this, this workshop on or seminar on every year. Um, and I want to say this year they had Kenyatta. Um, from Genealogy Roadshow, uh, she was actually their keynote speaker, um, and they have a lot of different speakers that come. I've I've taught there, Craig Manson. Um, gosh, I could just go down the list. It's a lot of folks, um, but that was the first conference that I ever went to was in Sacramento, California. And shout out to those folks there. Um, in fact, um, I know that uh, Pat Bayon Johnson, who's been involved with, with some of the Georgetown stuff, was kind of involved um, with Sacramento at some point too. So. Yes. So since the discussion tonight will focus on challenges and opportunities, I want you, since you said, number one, you're self-taught, but you have also attended conferences and you've had individuals to mentor you. So, but talk about challenges. What would you consider some of the challenges in African-American research? I think number one, and, and you know, I like to when I when I talk about this type of an issue, I like to talk about the current landscape and what's going on right now. And I think one of the biggest challenges, and this is just in general, is the divide between the purely online group and the folks that recognize that you need to have some online and you need to have some offline research. Um, and when you have that type of you know, uh, situation going on where there's a group that's, that's more focused on the innovation and the, and the new evolving technology, and then there's another group that isn't, um, 
it, people can kind of butt heads and, and things like that. And, you know, that's just speaking broad terms, just research in general. But in terms of an individual, I think um, what one of the challenges is that I encounter, especially when I'm working with folks, when I'm coaching people, is that people don't have a concept of a timeline. And what I mean by that is, especially if you begin to do research online, you know, you're looking for documents. You know, you want to get to a census. You get back to 1870, and then you feel like, okay, I can't, I haven't been able to find anything before this, so, you know, I don't know what's going on. Um, and, and, and not really taking into account all the other documents that you've gathered that give you a picture as to what was happening before 1870. But because we're so honed in on the document race, you know, the number of documents and the number of links and the number of things that we can save and not the whole picture in its totality, we ignore the timeline and how important that is to establishing, you know, what was going on with our ancestors and, and how they lived their lives and why maybe certain decisions were made or, you know, a, a number of different things. And so, um, unfortunately, one of the drawbacks of the online environment is in some ways ignoring the timeline um, and, and knowing how important that is to researching, um, uh, doing effective research on your ancestors. I know that when Ancestry, you know, redesigned their website and, and their family tree, they did make the timeline kind of like a, an important part of it. But in some ways, I think a lot of folks still aren't paying attention to that because, you know, I've seen in my own, my own research, you know, going looking, looking through trees and finding people who got married after they died. You know, and the fact <laughs> that the you know, person isn't, you know, looking at like, okay, there's no way that this marriage could be that person, you know, because they died. And I guess that would be sort of like a, a second challenge is in addition to folks not really being mindful or paying attention to the timeline, or the resources there to really kind of make that kind of front of mind. Uh, the second thing I would say in terms of a challenge would be analysis of the document, analysis of the information that you do have, um, and not taking the time to really learn about the history of why that particular document was created, what is in the document. Um, the other night during Black Virgin Live, we were talking about cohabitation records. And one of the things that um, Renata Yarbrough-Sanders mentioned, of course, was that, okay, you've got names of the people. These are folks that were former slaves who are having their marriages documented. Um, you've got the husband's name. You've got the wife's maiden name. It also mentions that they were former slaves in that. It gives you a date. That, of course, is their marriage date. You know, otherwise, if the person just finds that, they're just going to say, okay, here's the date. But they're not going to take the time to recognize what does cohabitation actually really mean. What does the state or the county mean by that when they created that document? Um, so I would definitely say that would probably be number two in terms of a challenge when it comes to African-American research, or just researchers in general at this point. That's, that's everybody. I said everyone. Right, because um, I was going to say, isn't that everybody? But now you do have two comments coming out of the chat room, and I just want to tell you what has been said. Uh, genealogy, Jen said, tracing the tree further back instead of creating a full picture of each generation. And then we have another comment that knowing the community is key for a timeline as well. Things and events that happen around your ancestor. And then I have even another Absolutely. comment. And this comment is so many people do not have a sense of history. Critical dates that they should have in their head, they simply don't. So they have no idea of what was going on when the document was created, 
You know, it's just something that's missing in their thought process. Especially that that's one of the drawbacks of the online environment. If you can go back to, you know, when we were much more paper-based, right, when you, you know, think about going to the Louisiana State Archives in Baton Rouge, right? We've both been there. Right. You're going, mm-hmm. you're pulling death certificates for, you know, members of your family. And then, you know, at some point during your trip, after you've got these printouts, um, I don't know if they've made it to where you can actually scan the microfilm at this point, but I think you still have to print stuff out there. But, you know, there's going to be a time when you're taking that trip where you're going to read through the, the, the death certificates. You're going to see, okay, who's the informant, who, who's got all that, right? If you're just looking at an online document, especially if you've gotten it um, or caught wind of it because of a hint on a tree, a lot of folks just say, oh, well, look, the system's already identified the name, the, uh, you know, death date, the birthday. It's already, you know, that's fine. That's all I need. They're not looking at, well, gosh, you know, this death certificate has got a ton of information on it. Oh, did you see the cause of death? The person died in an accident. Well, what was going on? Okay, well, then from there, let me go and find the newspaper, see if I can find a newspaper account of that accident. Or let me see if I can find an obituary that goes with this death certificate. You know, when, when we moved to the heavily online environment, that, that analysis that you would do because you have a printed sheet of paper in front of you, a, a lot of people don't really think to go that route. They just, they, it's almost like dotting I's and crossing T's versus, okay, yeah, I've got I's and I've got T's, but I need to put them in a sentence, in a coherent sentence. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, you know, so I think that, that definitely is absolutely right. Um, and the person who mentioned community research, absolutely, 110%. Um, you know, that's looking at witnesses, looking at neighbors. Um, that's often something that I use in my research, especially if I'm trying to verify that a particular family is a particular family. You know, perhaps maybe I found them on one census but not another. So I'll look to see who was around them on the census that I found them on. And then the previous one or the other one that I'm looking for them on that I can't find them, I'll search for their neighbors. Where are their neighbors at? You know, if if they were consistent with where they lived, well, then I I figure my ancestors should probably be in this ward or district, um, you know, in a previous census or, you know, a previous set of records. So, yeah, community research is definitely key. Right, and you just have, I mean, the the chat room just has a lot of comments. So I'm going to just share with you some of those comments that that are coming out. Uh, This is from Family Tree Girl. She said, also true what you've said. Then they need to also understand the laws. Uh, Absolutely. That's associated with the the time. I mean, you're putting this timeline together, as you've mentioned earlier, but they just need to to understand the whole context of everything that's going on in the community. And sometimes, uh, uh, this is a statement from LaBrenda uh, about online data, is it's as good as the transcriptions. And sometimes Absolutely. you end up wading through web pages anyway. So you, you just have so much. <laughs> and then there's another comment. <laughs> Thanks, chatters. It's wonderful to see you engaged in this conversation tonight. Uh, right and the local culture and history. You have to think about that. That And this is uh, genealogy, Jen, Jen. She's learned so much about history as an adult. To help with her yes. genealogy, and absolutely. Uh, absolutely, yes, it's almost like you you study in history all over again with your well, genealogy. It's from, a different, 
Yeah, it's from a different lens. You know, I mean, especially after going through this process of researching your family, so many of us put so much time into this, you know, to the point where when we're watching programs about historical events, you're putting your ancestor into those places. You know, you're, you're, you're inserting your family narrative because it's no longer unknown to you. So when you hear about the Civil War, it's not, oh, well, somebody existed then because I'm alive. No, it's, you know what? My great-great-grandfather was a part of the first Kansas troops, and they, you know, were, uh, they served at this location and, and that location, and then he, you know, mustered out in this place. You know, so you're following the timeline of a program or a book or something that you're reading, and you're able to insert your ancestors' narrative into it. And that's the power of history and the power of genealogy, and that's a big reason why it can be successful with young people is a lot of times when they're learning these subjects and concepts in their classroom, whether it's um, history, it could be government econ, it could be a number of different things. If they have someone that they know that they descend from, that they can attach to some of the concepts and some of the, the coursework that's being, you know, put forth, then it, it makes it more real to them. You know, a lot of times I hear, you know, I'm with uh, young people a lot. You know, they're like, well, what, how am I going to use this in the real world? Or, or is this going to, you know, what, what, what is this, is, is this any benefit to me? And until a teacher can really tap into what, you know, especially with family history, I mean, there's so many ways that you can involve that in a curriculum. Um, if a teacher is able to effectively, you know, connect them in a personal way to the subject matter, especially in the way that family history research and genealogy does, then, you know, they can take that and run with it, and, and they have that personal connection. And um, definitely to, to touch back on um, some of the comments that were made, absolutely 110% um, knowing the law, you know, what was going on, especially when it comes to African-American research. This is key because, you know, the 13th Amendment um, is actually what abolished slavery. Um, it, and, and if you really want to get real with it, you know, several states, of course, ratified that before the, you know, the 20th century, but, you know, we have, we have Mississippi. It took them until, what was that, 20, was it 2013 or 2003 before they actually ratified the 13th Amendment? And thinking about the fact that that is what abolished slavery in the United States, and if you had ancestors who were living in Mississippi, or perhaps if you were born in Mississippi, the fact that that state did not ratify that amendment until much later. What should that tell you about the course of action or about the climate for people of color in that state? Just, right. just we're, we're, not even, we're not even dealing with anything outside of the 13th Amendment, just that. So if you look at that and then you also look at Mississippi, let's just throw that out for an example, and the fact that they had a sovereignty commission. A lot of people don't know about that. And Mississippi wasn't the only state that had one. Louisiana had one. Alabama had one where they surveilled people who were in the civil rights movement or who even had possible ties to it or loose connections to it. And the fact that it was government sanctioned, it was government funded. The federal government even had given grants that were, that were you know, used for the purpose of surveilling people in the civil rights, you know, civil rights movement. Um, and the, and these, these, the sovereignty commissions were created to protect the sovereignty of those states, meaning, you know, the, the, the dominance, the, the, you know, the, the, just to protect the way of life of those places. You know, so you have that happening 
what, that was started late 40s, and, and they continued all the way until the early 70s. You know, so if you have family that stayed in those areas or perhaps maybe they migrated out, thinking in the context of, of those institutions or the, the fact that, that the 13th Amendment wasn't ratified for, you know, gosh, way past, you know, when it was supposed to be. You know, looking at those things, Jim Crow laws, voting, you know, poll taxes, the fact that your ancestors paid poll taxes, but they actually weren't able to vote themselves. What that meant, you know? Um, right, but you, you're throwing out you're throwing out a lot of a lot of things, and you talk about putting your ancestors in the historical context of what has been happening, and then you talk about the challenges of genealogy. There's a lot of learning that needs to take place. I mean, people need to understand. Well, what what is a poll tax? You know, what about voter registration? You're talking about Jim Crow. You're talking about the Civil War. And you know, for years, and this is a comment from Angela Walton Raji. For years, many people of color never studied the Civil War because it was Absolutely. taught basically about white folks from the north fighting white folks from the south and so even even when you get to the revolutionary war and you now have the forgotten patriots it's something that people didn't even focus on but let's go back for a minute you're right yeah you're absolutely right something i'm sorry Mm -hmm. to interrupt you but something else that i will also throw in there as well you know the the story of the u.s colored troops is something that gets largely ignored you know, I, I, for myself, I had no real knowledge of it until I started doing my own family history research, and I just, you know, started discovering all these people in my family who had served in the Union Army during the Civil War. You know, and, and there's, um, there's a scene, I can't, I think it's in Forrest Gump, where um, Lieutenant Dan, he talks about how he's had an ancestor, a male ancestor, die in every war, you know, since the creation of the United States. There's this montage where, like, you know, you see his dad or somebody drop dead in, you know, uh, uh, World War II and then the next, you know, war and the next war and going all the way back to, like, the Revolutionary War. I bring that up because there's a story like that potentially for every black family. There's a black person that's probably that's died in every war we've ever had, but our story gets largely overlooked because it doesn't fit the narrative, the current narrative. Um, and so that's the danger of not knowing this information and not passing it on to future generations is that, you know, people just don't know, so they don't know to pass it on. Um, and, you know, I, I, definitely, um, I definitely think that genealogy is a tool and a way to be able to do that in a creative and a, and, a, and a way that makes it individualistic and allows the person who hears the information to be able to take a hold of it and make it personal. So sorry. Right. So go ahead with whatever and, you're and say with there. that, and with that, we're going to take a quick break and come back and continue to talk about challenges, and then we're going to talk about opportunities. But quick break, and we'll be right back. All right.
people, welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. So, Nika, you be, you started off telling us some challenges, and you said number one, number two. What other challenges, and let's say you're talking to the beginner, what kind of challenges do you want them to even be aware of? I would say, you know, after, you know, timeline, after document analysis, I would say probably number three would be, documentation. And what I mean by that is, you know, making sure that the information that you've gotten is in some sort of, a, of an organized format. You know, uh, the, the average beginning researcher at this point is probably going to, you know, be in an online environment. They're going to have a tree on one of the major services like genie.com, family search, you know, ancestry, which is perfectly fine. But the, the, the issue with that potentially is the fact that a lot of these services are fee-based. So what happens when you stop paying for your, you know, access to this service? What happens to your tree? Have you downloaded it to make sure that it's preserved, you know, so that the information is not lost um, somewhere? Or, you know, um, the other piece, too, is, okay, let's say someone decides that they don't want to have something in the online environment. Maybe they want to have it um, at their home well, how is the information organized? You know, is it, um, have you clearly labeled your folders or however you have your storage system so that, you know, um, my, one, of the, one of my former bosses often said with the work that we were doing that it should be that if I got hit by a bus one day, anybody off the street could walk in and figure out what my organization system was. And that's the way that I operate when it comes to my research. I, it should be so intuitive to the person who comes in and, you know, takes over for me because at some point someone in my family is going to take over for me, and I don't want to leave them with something that is in disarray or in chaos. And that's not to say that I am ultra organized. Everyone, every time anything happens, you know, I'm just right there, on, you know, on my P's and my Q's, and I got everything is just distinct, and, and my file cabinet looks like, you know, you could take a white glove and just run your finger through it and you can find everything. <laughs> You know, some days are not like that for me, you know, but, but for the most part, I really try to put an effort into be, being organized and, and making sure that whoever I leave my information to is, is going to get of what I have to offer. And that even includes including notes in um, some, of my, uh, some of my ancestors or some of my relatives, um, you know, records in my database. I'm still one of those people that has a local copy of my database on my computer, um, you know, my biggest tree that I have has over 3,000 people. It's not even online. Um, and that's just because I'm very protective over my information and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And that's not saying that I don't want anybody to find anything out. But, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just a, I'm a dinosaur in that regard. But, you know, when, when someone has made note to me of a, of a sensitive situation, 
you know, I don't want to reopen that wound by having somebody else come up behind me and ask the same question. So I'll make a notation as on this date, X, Y, Z, blah, 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 you know, and I leave that in there, lock it, it's private, only the person on the database can see it, making sure that other family members have a copy of my database so that if something happens to my computer or my system or whatever I'm using, you know, the information doesn't die with that machine. Um, so that, I guess it's but sort is of this kind of specific, like But is, is this unique to the African uh, ancestor genealogy Absolutely. process? Or is Absolutely. this for everybody? It can be it can be for everybody, but the reason why I think that it should be pointed towards African American research is in some ways we already start at a disadvantage because a lot of our history is oral. It's things that have been passed down verbally from one generation to the next. And oftentimes I hear this all the time. It's happened in my own family. Oh, well so and so knew about that and, and they could tell you about XYZ, but nobody wrote it down. So when someone decides to take up the mantle of doing the family history research, they don't have anything to start with because there was no predecessor. There was no person who took the time to actually, you know, create a, a system or, 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 you know, documentation that was going to preserve that history. And, and the reason why I'm saying that this is definitely an issue for African-Americans is because the, there's, there's the whole idea out there that we have no history, that, that because we're not, we don't, you know, have these, 72 volumes of hardback books that exist in the, you know, the Allen County Public Library that we just don't exist. You know, two times this week I saw two major news outlets say that African Americans were on the census before 1870, which is not true. So that means we have to tell our stories. We have to make them portable. We have to make them in a, in a format that makes them available to other people in our family and that preserves them. And and if not, that that lie is going to continue to get from you know, to be perpetuated. So um, that's right. Very, and there's a comment coming out of the chat that we need to use oral history as a launch pad. Sometimes Absolutely. what we hear is not totally accurate. That is where the research comes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is a starting point. It's not the end all be all, you know, in some ways we can't also allow the documents to tell the whole story either. You know, because they're only they're only as as useful as the information that is on there. What are, what were the things that were not on there? You know, think about especially in situations of parentage, right? You have someone's birth certificate. You know, you oral history may tell you, well, her daddy is so and so, but the birth certificate might say don't know, or it might say unknown. That's not really true. The person may have grown up with their father. Um, you know, or and and knew them. You know what I mean. Of course, when you add in DNA to to the situation, of course, you know that would verify what the situation was, or you know that the, that the father was the father. But you know, uh, not not really including that in the discussion so much. Just looking at a document, you know, where a person has grown up with the oral history. Well, that's your father. Or in some some instances, that's not your daddy, right? The oral history is oh, it's somebody else. You know, so the whole notion of the birth certificate saying for in the father's place, don't know or unknown, that's not really com completely accurate. So that's why you have to make sure you do, you know, a thorough search and you get as many pieces together as possible so that you can tell as accurate as, of a story as possible. Right. And there's a comment coming out of the chat that the oral history can change over time. So it is yes. important to seek evidence 
to help support the story. Absolutely, absolutely. And I and I would say, um, you know, just to kind of piggyback on this in a way, another challenge that we have that's very specific to African Americans is really um, some of the, the the bigger databases or record sets that that uh, can really help us break down some some genealogical brick walls or answer a lot of questions are just they're not digitized or they're they're maybe not as easily accessible you know to the public and and even you know and we we don't even have to necessarily talk about federal record sets what if you know who your slaveholder's family is or if you you know you know who the last slaveholder is for your ancestors and you know that their descendants have papers within their possession that document your ancestors but those people are unwilling to allow you to view, to view them just to even look at them right and and they haven't we, we, been donated to any of the they haven't been uh, donated yeah to any of the repositories yeah, so that you can have access to those records so that's that's a that's a problem think, uh think but about, you mentioned think about any other group in history though that has that i mean consider that who who what other group can you think of that's a, that's people of color who have to go potentially have to go through a clearinghouse to even get to information about their ancestry, right? So, yeah, you've got a slave schedule. Yeah, you've got potentially estate paperwork. But what if the person died after slavery ended and their family didn't gift their papers to a university or to, uh, to a, uh, you know, library or archives? You've got to go and get permission from the people who, who own these documents. And if they say no, what are you going to do? What other situation can, can anyone perhaps maybe in the chat room think of that is that where it, there's a clearinghouse sort of, so to speak, that you have to go through to confirm your family story or to even, even have tactility to your ancestor's story? And what I mean by that is something, you know, something that, that, that touches the senses where you can feel that piece of paper, that bill of sale. You know, if, if the person died after slavery, you may not ever get access to that information if that family stonewalls you. So, you know, that, that's, a, that's a unique challenge, to I believe, to African-American uh, genealogy research. Yes, just having access to those records and the family papers. Now, you... You know, we've jumped from, I guess, the contemporary, we're talking about slavery, but I want you to just talk for a minute. Let's just talk about slavery, era research, and communications. Because you Absolutely. mentioned, you know, kind of how do you get those papers that may be a part of a family record system that you don't have access to? But let's say someone has had access to those records and they find that your ancestor is on one of those documents, how should that be communicated to someone that is not aware of the fact that their family members were enslaved and for the first time they're being exposed to this information? Every situation is different. Um, I think if someone is a slaveholder's descendant, which I am, you are, right? I mean, we fit yes. the bill for this. You know what I'm saying? You know, as, as African-Americans, we can't be ignorant to the fact that we descend from slaveholders as well as slaves, you know, the formerly enslaved. So we may be the person breaking this information to somebody else. You know, I think that's a perspective that we often don't really consider. We often think, 
oh, well, it's the slaveholders, you know, uh, they're, you know, white identified descendants who are having to release this information. Um, and and, and, and in, in, in any instance, though, I feel, um, number one, do your due diligence on your ancestor who was a slaveholder. What I mean by that is you want to try to get as many accounts uh, regarding, you know, what type of person they were. And, and I'm not talking the um, sunshine day, oh, happy day, tap dance story about your ancestor. No. Really do some digging. Go through diaries of colleagues, you know, or, or people who were in the fan club. Look for accounts, you know, about their business acumen and, and different things like that. And you're probably like, well, why, why would I do that? Because when you approach this person who was a descendant of the, the, you know, the formerly enslaved of your ancestor, you want to be able to speak to them in a manner into which you acknowledge the fact that they may not have been the most positive person or they may not have been the ancestor that you should laud and have on the wall of your home and have them overlooking you and, you know, you, you state so proudly, oh, I'm a descendant of this person and blah, 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 not realizing the atrocities that this person may have committed on, on, on other people. You know, um, so I would definitely say do your due diligence with regard to the slaveholder. Some, sometimes those, those accounts and things aren't available, and that's perfectly fine, but do at least do the search. You know, and, and when you contact the person, you know, say, I've, I've looked for information about the type of person he was, you know, or, or I have discovered this, you know, um, or that about him and, and or her, you know, in this instance. Um, and then, you know, talk about what you have you know, perhaps maybe how you've acquired the information, um, you know, what you will be willing to share with them, um, you know, if you are interested in meeting them or meeting up to discuss the issue, um, you know, that, that could be it. And the other thing I think also is, you know, one of the things that burns me a lot, you know, with regard to this type of research, especially it, it, it makes me so upset when, um, you know, when I contact relations of mine who are descended from the slaveholder, just like I am, and I mention to them that, you know, that I'm the descendant of, you know, uh, them, the slaveholder and the former slave, when people just flat out deny that it's impossible. There's no way that he would have had or she would have had a child with a slave. Well, you weren't shining a light down there when it happened. <laughs> None of us could can teleport ourselves back to that incident, you know, but DNA is opening doors and it's, it's, it's kind of putting a lot of folks business out on front street. So um, I would just say, you know, don't just put it out there, be honest, be transparent, do your due diligence, look at your ancestor, get accounts, find out what kind of person they were. And then when you, you know, encounter a person who is potentially doing research on the same person or who was connected to them either through slavery or through blood, Put it out there. Say, I'm a descendant of, you know, um, I'm just throwing out a name, William Balfour, William Lovett Balfour, and I know that he owned slaves in these locations. Um, and I believe that your family were, were slaves, formerly enslaved by him. And I've got documents that mention, you know, the names of the slaves. And, and I'm, I'm, my hope and my, my desire is that I would like to reach out to you to see if we can connect your family um, and I can provide some sort of closure or give you some sort of, um, you know, more information on, on who your ancestors were and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And while I can't take back what happened, I'm trying to write it now. That's a big thing to mention. 
Right. Right. But then, but then what about, what about the, the individual? individual? And, and, you know, people, you know, people that go into documents, documents you, you as, as a, a genealogist, you're helping people find uh, their ancestors. And you've you got eight to eight, seven, seven, and you're still going back. And then you find an inventory. And you and find, find the family members on that, that inventory. How do you then communicate that information to the descendants of the slave? And I'm trying to get to the emotional side of it, genealogy. And how do you communicate that to that person? Do you say, hey, your ancestors, look at them. They're listed along with the cattle and the furniture and the silverware. Or is there another way to share that information? I would, you know, you're approaching a person you don't know. You know, so unless they, you know, if you know someone personally, you know, if I'm sending this information to you, I would say, girl, look, I found so-and-so, blah, 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 blah. Look over there next to the feather bed. You'll see value X, Y, Z. But if I don't know you and I don't have a rapport already established with you, the first thing I'm going to do is introduce myself. Hello, my name is blah, blah, blah. I am a descendant of this person. I have researched this family. I've got a tie through DNA, X, Y, Z. You put that out there so that they know and that they are um, educated about where you're coming from, that it's not from a place of I'm just trying to make you upset or I'm just trying to make you mad or you know, I'm trying to be messy or whatever. Put that out there at the very beginning. And then say, you know, in the, in, the, in the course of my research, I have been able to uncover several documents held by family members that um, mention the names of slaves, and I feel it's my duty as a descendant of this slaveholder, of this ancestor, to, to provide that information to the descendants of those slaves or people who are interested in this family as being potential slaveholders. And would you be interested in connecting regarding research and the family? The other thing I would also say if I'm a descendant of a slaveholder is, do you see any, do you see any white uh, members of this family in your DNA results? Put that out there so that it's not so, oh, gosh, there's no way it could have happened, that you're not even thinking about it. Just be very transparent. And, and in some ways, you know, I often talk about this, there's no one-size-fits-all for reconciliation when it comes between slaveholders and slaveholders' descendants. You can't go on Amazon Prime and buy a kit for slaveholders' descendants' re- reconciliation. There is, there, that isn't it. And, and that's the problem that I think a lot of people are dealing with is they think, oh, well, one black person is going to want what every black person wants. No. Some people are, you might have some folks who don't even care. They don't even want to research a slaveholder. But then you have other people who want to research the slaveholder because they know by researching the slaveholder that that is going to give them more information about their ancestor because they were taken along with them along the journey. If they were sold down south or the family moved down south, um, you know, those, those types of things. So it's, it's a case-by-case basis. The only thing I can tell someone is be yourself, be genuine. You know, let, let the person know I'm here for research as well, and at the same time I understand that this is a troubling and, and an emotional issue, but what, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to heal it. And, and I'm putting myself out there so that you understand that sending a hand to you. You know, um, for me, and, you know, this is just my own personal journey. When I see that somebody is attached to one of my slaveholding ancestors and I see a Confederate flag as a profile image for that particular ancestor, 
that for me is a red flag that I don't even want to talk to them. Now, that's me personally. That's not everybody. But um, at the same time, you know, there are other people, you know, who don't have a, a Confederate flag, you know. And for me, that, that, that makes me feel that, that it's more welcoming. Yes, I understand that the person may have served in the Confederate troops and all. Yeah, I get that. But as an African-American, as someone who is descended from people who were slaves, as someone who is descended from people who were not slaves, who were free people of color, you know, as someone who has grown up knowing the history of the Confederate flag, that's like a stop sign for me. And that's why there is no one-size-fits-all for this. Everybody's got different emotions. They've got different experiences attached to it. And the best thing you can do is be yourself and be authentic. That's that's wonderful advice. Well, we have a caller, uh, area code four four three. You have a question or a comment? Yes. Hi. Good evening. I just wanted to make a comment too. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to make just a, a simple comment that there's another sort of obstacle and uh, to African American research, even if we are fortunate enough to meet someone who is welcoming of our inquiry to the slaveholding family. But then also there's acknowledgement. Yes, uh, great-great-grandpa did have some children with, with uh, one of his slaves or, or someone, a farmer or someone who was there, a person of color. Then what happens next to in allow that researcher to go further into that Euro history? Many of us have 15, 20, 25, 40 50% Euro ancestry, uh, that we're not necessarily given that welcome and match to find out that part. Oh, they came from this part of, of Ireland or wherever. And uh, just curious how many go and then embrace that part of their ancestry. Um, but just be curious to see, because I think that is some an obstacle. Okay, yeah, they had children, so what? But that is part of who we are too as people in America. Well, right. I, I think you bring up, yeah, you bring up some really good points because, you know, that's, that's one of the unique things about being African-American is that it's not, you know, none of us are, I mean, it's very few of us who are 100% African. You know, I would imagine that a lot of people in the chat room or listening to this particular, um, you know, uh, podcast or show would, would know, they would say, oh gosh, you know, I've got whatever percentage this is or that is. Um, and, you know, it, to me, you know, it kind of goes back to what I just said is you've got to be authentic. You've got to be who you are. And, you know, it, it, in some ways it's like we're dealing with this like adoptees, right? When you're right. somebody who's been adopted, perhaps from, from birth, and, you know, you don't know who your biological parents are. You're having to reach out to total strangers, especially when it comes to genetic genealogy, to get some sort of a clue as to who a potential parent may be. It may be that that, that match that you have doesn't even know that their cousin, their aunt, their uncle gave a child up for adoption. They have no clue, right? right and and right. in this instance, when it comes to being, you know, a descendant of a, of a European person of European descent, it's the same thing. You're still approaching people you don't know, asking them for information, right, trusting that they'll respond back to you. It's very um, – that's the reason why, by nature, all this is very emotional is because you're having to put yourself out there. It's, it's not like – you know, it's, it's, it's not as easy as giving a seat on the bus or holding the door open for somebody. It's, yeah, I'm doing that, but, you know, I've got a T-shirt on that says I was an adoptee. You know, it has all my business out. <laughs> you know, I don't know. It's like, um, 
you know, uh, when when you give a speech, you know, or you're nervous in speech writing, and they they uh, give you different techniques, you know, when you're getting ready to give a speech to imagine, you know, imagine that the everyone in the audience has on a crazy hat or you know something like that. You know, you're just you're just putting yourself out there. You know, you're you're almost in some ways, you know, you're almost that person giving that speech. You're up on a podium and you're you're telling all these people who you think may not even care or listen to you, this is me. This is who I am. This is who I come from. Help me. You know, help me get through this speech. Help me help me uh help me help me discover more about who I am. And that's very personal. Um, you know, and and the only thing you can do in that instance is be you. And if someone if someone throws up a brick wall to you or or pushes back, then maybe that's not a cousin you need to be involved with, or maybe that's not a person you may need to be involved with. And and sometimes we have to swallow that. And 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 maybe time will open up their heart or or open up their their um, ideas about it. Or maybe you'll get a closer match, and you don't even have to deal with them. Right. And in in this uh, context, you're talking about DNA. Uh, mm-hmm. But then. What happens when when we know their secrets and there's some scandals oh. and there's some lies mm-hmm. and and we we are so bent on our genealogy that we're doing safe genealogy, meaning we're mm-hmm. not digging into some of those records and some of those issues or talking about some of those issues that we should be talking about to help us really understand our families. So talk about that for a minute. You know, I think you have to establish early what your policies are going to be in your research. This is something that I often talk about when I present. You know, early on, I, I there were just certain things that I, you know, that I had that were like my list of what I was and what I was not going, going to do. And when you're dealing with family history research, you know, as I just mentioned, this is very personal. This is very, you know, I'm putting myself out there. It's the very nature and the very essence of you just out there, you know, in the form of a tree, you know. And, and sometimes there are liaisons and things that happen that you have, obviously you have no control of because your, your ancestors were the people who were taking part. Um, and so when you establish policies early about what you are going to dig into and what you're not, you know, for me and my family, if someone had a child with a person and they weren't married, you know, if I know the name of the father, I'm going to put the name of the father because that's who the father is, correct? Like it's just pedigrees. It's just family histories, the study of lineages, right? That's the pure, you know, definition of genealogy. Some people choose not to. If the father's not involved in the person's life, some people choose not to. You know, that's, that's their personal policy. For me, I, in my research, I list the person. Now, if there was some other extenuating circumstance, perhaps maybe the father or the mother was abusive to, a, to the other parent or whatever, if someone requested I remove it from the public record but keep it as a part of the database, absolutely 110%, yes, I will do that. You know, but, um, you know, then there are other times, um, you know, it took me a while before I would start looking at civil and, and not even so much civil records, but criminal court records. You know, for your ancestors, um, I can't think of it. I think his name is, is Ron Aarons, that's the black sheep genealogy person where he talks about his ancestor who went to prison and all this kind of stuff. There was a while where I, I wouldn't even look at those records, you know. Um, and then I started to look at them, and, and some of them were funny. You know, it was uh, somebody got fined for cursing in public or, um, you know, other things. Those are things that if you ignore them, then you're not helping to establish the timeline, right? You're ignoring years that it could be documented of a timeline. So 
um, you know, my, my thoughts about that, sensitive information, secret scandals and lies, those NPEs or non-paternal events, you know, somebody said daddy was this person and it actually isn't, you know, establish your policies early. Are you going to get down and dirty, you know, in the genealogical swimming, uh, uh, you know, sandbox, or are you going to stay in your beach chair? Establish your, your policies early. You know, and, and, and I honestly feel like when you um, make your – when you make it an effort to do the deep digging, you will have family members who will come back to you about separate things that they want help and assistance for. Um, you know, I, I have a cousin right now that I'm, I'm helping track down birth parents for, and she trusted me enough to be able to help her with this information because I had done the due diligence on other parts of the family and tried to answer questions. And, and you know, that's, that's something else that someone could do is make yourself available. Let your family know. Is, is there a research question or is there something about our history that you've always wondered about? And, and you know, it may be not something I worried about or wondered about, but, but give yourself, make yourself open so that they can ask those questions and you can attempt to try to answer them for them. Um, you know, that's, I mean, and it could be I don't know who my father is. For some people, that's what it is, and you do everything in your power to try to find out what the answer to that question is. Um, right. But at the at the very root at the very root of it, it's it's all emotional because it's personal. It's all these people that make up who we are. You know that we didn't have any choice in in determining who they were, um, and by the very nature of that, and the fact that we can't control it, it's automatically emotional. There's automatically a, a, an emotional tie to it. Right. And there's a comment coming out of the chat from Susan. She said, we need wisdom to share what we know. Mm-hmm. And we also need to make it safe and okay to share what we know. So many people walk around with this pain and this guilt, and they hold this information so close to the heart without sharing it with somebody else. And sometimes the truth will set them free if they're willing to share that truth with someone else. Well, let's go to a totally different place right now. Let's talk about opportunities. We've talked about the challenges. Well, what kind of opportunities do you see right now for the beginner, the intermediate, and the advanced uh, researcher? I would say for the beginner, some opportunities are just, gosh, the world is your oyster right now. Um, You know, especially when you start working with someone who, you know, hasn't, no one in their family has started doing their family history research. And, you know, they they come with, you know, uh, an amazing set of documents or oral history or whatever. I mean, they could could get back to 1870 in a matter of minutes at this point now, you know, perhaps maybe even a half an hour. so, you know, the world is their oyster. You know, new record sets are being released all the time online. I mean, the fact that you can sit, especially in certain states, and, and I mean, you don't even have to leave your house to be able to get back decently far um, doing research, and you haven't even hit the microfilm level or even researching on site. So um, in terms of uh, new researchers, I would say, um, you know, just the fact that you have so, much, so many resources available to you you know, and, and the fact that you don't have to pay to have access to a lot of this stuff, that you could use family search, you know, if you can't afford an Ancestry membership, or the fact that libraries have access to Ancestry. So you can just use your library card, 
you know, to get access to those things. Um, I would definitely say that's a, that's a huge opportunity for a beginner. And the fact that, you know, that they, a beginner can listen to this show, listen to several episodes, the knowledge and the skills that they need, or at least hear from people who, who can teach them sort those things. And they're not, you know, starting off incorrectly or having to go back, um, you know, having to go back over what they did, you know, 10 years ago. Um, I would definitely say that that is, um, you know, an opportunity for a new uh, new person. The, uh, when it comes to intermediate folks, I think this particular group is um, the most, I think has the most opportunity to grow or has the most opportunities, especially if they learn to leverage DNA um, and learn the technology and learn how to connect it with the traditional genealogy research. You know, uh, what I see people doing, what I see you doing, what I see me doing, what I see a lot of other folks doing is breaking through not this brick wall of 1870, but going back even further than that, harnessing the power of documents and traditional research and DNA. And so um, that's a that's an opportunity for that intermediate group. Um, and the only way that they're able to do that is to just really, you know, uh, in some ways, you know, keep working, keep plugging at it, you know, keep keep being, um, you know, steadfast in their approach and, and what they're doing and, and, and their pursuit of information. And, you know, that's only the only way you acquire skills is if you keep trying to learn. Um, in terms of the advanced researcher, I think um, with that particular group, DNA, of course, is, is the biggest hurdle for them. Um, a lot of the folks who are advanced, a lot of them steer completely away from DNA. I think a lot of them, it scares them. It scares the mess out of them because it's just so new the technology is evolving, the terminology is different um, till, you know, they just feel overwhelmed by it and um, they don't know what to do. You know, they, they've got the percentages, they've got all that, but they don't, they don't know quite how to connect the, you know, traditional research to the DNA and, you know, being able to do triangulation and, you know, all these things. It's just, it's like a foreign language to them. Um, and in that instance, I would suggest to them the opportunity is go to, go to school and learn that foreign language. Learn, you know, SNPs. Learn centimorgans. Go back and learn it. And, and it will open up so many doors when it comes to your research. And the other thing I would say for that particular group is don't be closed off to young people who have an interest in research. Don't feel like because they're younger that they just don't know or that they just need to spend a lot more time or you know, that they um, are, uh, you know, just not knowledgeable. Um, you know, they may have come to the, the, the topic through different means, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not knowledgeable or they don't have experience as well. Right. And one of the things, I mean, you, you didn't talk about the youth, but they are very technology savvy. I mean, those are the people that are documenting, Snapchatting and telling this story, showing you their journey. And so it's a group to really embrace if possible and teach. And first, they can teach us just like we can teach them. But, you know, the youth are there and they're being exposed to things so much younger than we have ever been exposed to when it comes to the use of technology and helping you with your, your genealogy. And you're, you're absolutely right. And I think this is where the gap can be bridged. You know, there needs to be, 
people need to be on both sides need to be open. I think young people need to be open, and I think older people need to be open. I think the beginner needs to be open, the intermediate and the experienced person needs to be open, you know, and, and, and really tap into the skill sets, the unique skill sets that everyone has and what they bring to the table. You know, one of the things that I often talk about is the fact that, you know, we've got societies and groups that are meeting, and, you know, a lot of them are struggling to try to find relevance for young people. You know, and they say, oh, well, young folks aren't interested in genealogy. And, and I know you can attest to this. There are so many of them online. You know, I remember when, when I first started out doing research when I was two years old. I'm kidding. Um, when I first started out doing research, there was hardly anybody that was around my age. I was, I mean, I was one in a million. Now, please, there are so many people in my age group, so many Gen Xers, so many millennials who are interested in family history research. And um, they're discouraged from going to these meetings because they haven't evolved. The format is still the same. The topics are still the same. Um, the folks in the organization don't make it so that um, it's, it's welcoming when they get there, you know, or that they feel welcome or they feel like, you know, they should return. And if a person walks in and sees that from the, first, from the onset, they're not going to want to come back. Why? Because it's a waste of my time. They, this is exactly how they think. It's a waste of my time. And I'm not valued. My opinion's not valued there. Or um, it's just not my style. They don't make it attractive to me. So um, you're right. There's a t there are a ton of young people or younger people who are interested in family history research. But at the same time, the methods and the message um, from some of the older institutions that exist to promote genealogy or to preserve it or, you know, to push the message forward, they haven't evolved. They're still stuck. 20, 30 years ago, unfortunately, and unless they, they choose to evolve, I can't really tell you what's going to happen. Right. And, I mean, something really big is getting ready to happen. It's been 10 years in the making, but in two weeks, we're going to have the opening of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. And so when you think of this museum that's getting ready to open, what would you envision happening to all of the people that will be hopefully going to this museum? I think in combination with the museum's opening and, you know, we just had the new iteration of Roots air this year, right? That, yes. that came on, you know, had a large audience. We've got um, Birth of a Nation coming out from Nate, uh, Nat, uh, about Nat Turner from Nate Parker you have Underground, amazing series. Um, I'm going to definitely give it a shameless plug right now. If you have not watched Underground, please, please, please do that. Um, you've got all this programming so, and t telling new stories or unearthing stories that maybe people have known and providing them with a new context or a new light, right? Because Roots wasn't exactly how the first one was. They took creative license. They put the Civil War in it and all sorts of other things, right? The museum, I believe, is going to do that as well. It's, that's the whole point. It's to present history from a different perspective or a new light. And um, what I would hope that folks get from going to visit um, the museum is, you know, the, the, just the curiosity. I would hope that every person that walks out of that museum, just, just even if it's one thing that made them curious, and they wanted to go on their phone and, and, and read more about it. Because what that does is that likes to spark in them for interest in history which then lights a spark in them for interest in their family history or their own personal history. And so um, there's a potential, you know, huge, um, 
you know, there's just a huge potential, especially for family history research, you know, on the, on the, on the heels of somebody leaving that particular tour, you know, or leaving that particular museum and seeing all those, all those historical artifacts and the fact that they realize that we're not, you know, that our, our history didn't just start with the civil rights movement or it didn't start right after slavery, that, that it started way before that, you know, and that there's a tie there and, and that, that it's not just, oh, you know, a person who, oh, you know, I'm a descendant of Harriet Tubman, and they have her shawl or her scarf and scarf in there, so that's a museum for her family. No, it's a museum for all of us. Um, so Why? My, Why? My, hope, my hope and my plan is that every person that walks out of that museum is curious, even if it's just about one thing that they want to read more about or whatever. I hope that curiosity gets spurned from it, and it, it spreads like wildfire. Right. And, you know, one of the opportunities, as you said, hoping that people will walk out and it will just instill with them this sense of of contribution. This is American history and people will Mm -hmm. look at American history very, very differently. But it also is an opportunity to have a dialogue Go to work yes. and talk to people. Have this dialogue yes. in which you start talking to your family members, but tell your story. You have yes. so many opportunities to write your books, to participate in plays, to film what you're doing. The opportunities now just seem so much greater than they've ever been before when we talk Absolutely. about african-american research and so what you have done you shared with us some challenges you've really challenged people to look at a timeline put your ancestors in the context of a historical timeline what was going on and then what kind of documents were created during that time so that you could really tell the story about your ancestors. And that's the piece that you said is kind of missing, and it's the piece that's the challenge for everyone. Well, I want to throw out just one more question. And, Nika, I've heard you say this, so I want you to tell me why. You mentioned, and I saw this in an interview, that you felt that DNA – would play a role in healing tensions associated with race relations. Tell me about that. Absolutely. Um, I often refer to DNA as being the great equalizer. And what I mean by that is, you know, it, what it's telling people is that you're not 100% of this or 100% of that. It's shattering narratives in families, in particular with African-American families where you know, uh, especially the whole so-and-so was, was Native American or the Indian, and you're finding out, well, actually it wasn't Indian, it was European, you know, and trying to figure out what that story is. Um, and, and then on the other side, on the flip side, you know, with, with people of predominantly European descent, they're discovering they have family members who are not, who don't identify as, as, as white. Um, and it's causing a sort of a reckoning. You know, as, as African Americans, that's not a secret. You know, we've grown up in families knowing, you know, it might be a whisper, a murmur, you know, or somebody might kind of lean over and say, well, you know, so-and-so was, was, you know, their father was white or blah, blah, blah. We've grown up with that. But I think a lot of folks um, who are Euro-descended, predominantly Euro-descended, they were not raised with that information. Or yes. if someone knew, yes. they, will, they, willfully, they willfully chose not continue that information being passed down, you know, or they, uh-huh. they, they decided 
personally to withhold that information from, from, their, from their descendants. And DNA is, is one of those things that's it's undisputable, you know. Um, you know, you spit into a tube, it was coded, you put in the code, the te- company tested it, sent it off to a third party. You know, I mean, you weren't involved in that process of contaminating it. You just provided the sample. And so, you know, when it comes to equalizing things, you know, especially in the, in the current political climate that we have going on in the United States right now, you know, it's really easy to say those people, you know, to use that terminology, those people, with regard to any situation, you know, whether it's somebody on a bridge or on a freeway shutting it down for Black Lives Matter or, or it's somebody deciding to stage a protest in front of the NAACP in, in Houston, right? It's very easy to say those people in those, in those circumstances. But right. it's not so easy to say, the, so to say those people when you realize that one of the people that could be out there could be in your DNA results, could be a family member or a relation to you. So right. it's... It, yeah, go ahead. It's just something that people probably don't even think about until those results show up. Absolutely, there it's not. Right. Even, it's not even. It's not even considered, or the fact that a family member may have had a child that no one knew about. You know, um, you know, several of us have have found out about close relations we had no clue even existed until we had done DNA tests and they had done DNA tests. And so, I think in terms of like I said, the racial climate here in the United States. You know, with everything that's going on, you've got the Georgetown situation, you've got a lot of people who were doing research on their ancestors, discovering that they're slaveholders, all that. It's bringing everybody back down to a human level. Yes, we're all, you know, uh, 22, you know, chromosomes and a sex chromosome. You know, we're, that, by the very nature of us, that's what we are. And everyone's on an equal playing field there, you know, because there's, there's no gene that says, you're better than this other person just because you've, you've got this particular sequence. No, everyone's on an equal playing field. And, um, you know, as more and more people test and they discover the kind of the truth about what was going on in their family, you know, or, or more, um, uh, a more kind of well-rounded picture of what was happening, it'll teach them to judge less. It'll teach them, you know, when they watch the news or they hear the latest incident of somebody perhaps being, you know, shot or, or murdered or killed, you know, they don't see it as, oh, that's just somebody. That could be a relative of yours. You have no idea, you know, or maybe it is. And the only way that you discovered it was because you had taken a DNA test. You form a personal, you form a personal tie to those people or to the folks that, that maybe were in a group who, were, who were, may have been adversaries to you or, or that you just couldn't understand or you, you had no connection to. Now you do you because you've got cousins that look like that or that identify that way. So when you see a Tamir Rice situation, you know, or you see a Alton Sterling or Philando Castile, it's no longer, well, if they would have just, well, no, that he didn't deserve to die because that could have been somebody that I was related to. Right, Until we right. get back to a human level, all just people, and we all deserve to be loved and we all deserve to be, to have our rights respected and all that, then, you know, I don't really know how much things are going to change, but I think DNA is a gateway to that. Um, right, and Shannon just posted that this discussion is so timely, and he mentioned uh, there's a blog, 23andMe blog, Stories Bridging Families Rach- Racial Divide, and, you mm-hmm. know, that's something that we, we need to talk about and keep that dialogue going, and so with that said, Nika, thank you so much for coming on thank tonight. You. 
to share with us challenges and opportunities, chatters. I love all of your comments. You've just been so helpful just watching people dialogue in the chat room. This has been a great conversation that we perhaps need to keep going. So everyone, just remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records. Don't forget those timelines, people, and history. And research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the Afrogenius Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.genieberoots.com. I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Nika. Good night.